This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. And there it is. That's as good as it gets on this stage. Nissan Townstar EV strikes again. It's an unstoppable van. Unstoppable! Look, just fantastic. You can actually see the ProPilot technology in action. Effortless parallel parking. It moves with all the confidence that comes with a five-year warranty. And with a bench full of all-star van experts, there's real strength in depth here. That's all-star quality. Search Nissan Townstar EV and visit your local all-star van centre to see for yourself. Terms and conditions apply. Five years or 100,000 miles, whichever comes first. ProPilot is an advanced driver assist technology. Driver's responsibility to stay alert, drive safely and control vehicle at all times. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the result, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. So the only thing left to say is, you win. Order now on the McDonald's app. You can also get reward points delivered too. So the ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus. Rewards registration required. Points only on menu items. Delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Thanks for downloading this podcast from Love Sport Radio. For more, go to lovesportradio.com for all the latest podcasts, news and views. Or for more, follow us at Love Sport Radio on Twitter. Hello and welcome to the Crystal Palace Fan Show here on Love Sport Radio with me, Johnny Burrow and Nick Gillard from the Back of the Nest podcast. Nick, must have been an odd week without the Palace. I've had no car, <laughs> no sleep, no sleep, no palace, and they've left me to do it on my own this week, Johnny. I mean, what's going on? It's cruelty is what's going on. Cruelty, Nick. You won't be on your own for the whole show. Of course, we have a mystery guest racing on his way into the studio. We'll also have people over the phone, of course. A certain yes. Mr. Neil Shipperley, former Palace centre forward, will be on the line before eight. And we'll, of course, also be looking ahead to this weekend's game against Huddersfield with Ollie Fisher, who is a Huddersfield supporting journalist. So lots to get our teeth into. In, oh. The one good thing is we didn't get beat this weekend, so I am quite happy <laughs> well, that, about that. That is the advantage of an international break. The other advantage, of course, nowadays under the mighty Gareth, who I believe should be knighted immediately, waistcoat and all, is that it's actually a pleasure to watch England in the past. And I would always watch England out of, yeah. I think, a misplaced, misguided sense of duty. But it was actually quite painful at some points in the sort of noughties spell. Whereas actually we had it on in the studio yesterday when I was doing the Arsenal and Brentford fan shows and watching England now is a genuine pleasure. The football is good, the players are likeable and the whole ethos just seems to be entirely deserving of support. I'll be honest, I watched the Friday game, thought was excellent, really glad that uh, Sterling's finally got his mojo because if anybody wants to stick it in the face of people it's him. And he's just a joy to watch, isn't he? Fantastic. Um, the fact that he um, lifted up his top to show a T-shirt in memoriam of a Palace, a, a young team Palace player that um, sadly died, um, was really, really good. So he's, he's got a lot of affection from Palace fans now. Um, but last night's game, I saw us go down 1-0. 
And I watch the Parliament channel for the rest of the night. Because <laughs> I'm a sad sop like that. You kind of lose either way, actually. If you're 1-0 down against the, uh, for your team, it's about as bad as watching the Parliament channel, I'd have assumed at the moment. I do, I do like to watch the whole speeches, though, not just the little bits they grab off and then make a new headline about, which is nothing like what they've actually said. It's do, always good. Do you enjoy it, or is it a kind of punishment? I've always enjoyed poli- politics. But always. Even, but even within enjoying politics, watching the whole speech must, I mean, depending on who's giving the speech, yeah. must be something of a chore sometimes. It depends what they're talking about. I mean, last night was good because they were talking about the interventions they want or the you know, the ideas they want to put in and the fact that they've taken over Parliament. Yeah, all been kicking off. Speaking of interventions, we'll hopefully be seeing some from UEFA and FIFA in terms of the Montenegro fans last night. Uh, So for anyone who's not aware of this situation, there were allegedly monkey chants levelled at the likes of Raheem Sterling, Danny Rose, Callum Hudson-Odoi. Really sad, particularly for Callum Hudson-Odoi. I mean, obviously awful for all of them, but to be making your first start for your country. And Hudson-Odoi's given an interview where he said, I was told by my teammates to expect racial chanting. And you just think... Well, not just racial chanting, racist chanting. Yeah. You think, well, where are we as a society, as a world, as a sport, if you've got someone who is a kid being told that racism is just par for the course? It's baffling. It's the world we live in, I'm afraid. I know that sounds a bit cliche. I, I mean, we've come a long way in, in the UK. I can remember banana skins being thrown at John Barnes in the 80s. Well, we've seen that 90s. this season. We might not have come as far as we yeah. want if you think the Spurs fans allegedly throwing one at Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. Yeah. But fortunately, there's a lot of good people out there fighting against it. Um, There's been a lot of fascist organisations leafleting outside football grounds. In fact, they're trying to use the 80s route of getting into the the so-called firms, in inverted commas, and getting that way like the National Front used to do. But there seems to be a lot more more people standing against it. You've got show racing, red card, kick it out. I know Troy Townsend, um, Andros, his dad, does a lot of work with them. Um, so there's a lot of work going on. They're going into a lot of schools. They're going into a lot of clubs doing diversity training. So there is a, a kickback against it, but you are seeing a little bit more. When the HF went on strike at Palace, you could hear a few Tommy Robinson chants, which was a bit worrying. That is a bit worrying. And I saw on your Twitter a few weeks ago, there was a sort of Palace forum where you were suggesting there was some concerning yeah. things going on. Yeah, I won't give their name because I don't want to... No. But, but they're... It's just getting more and more right-wing with the viewpoints. So um, is it, do you think this is a problem for Palace specifically, or is this no, the Premier League, English football? It's England. It's just society in general, and they're using football as a conduit for it. So where do you think that comes from then, Nick? Is it something that's always been dormant? And if so, do you think these people feel that they've been given a kind of mandate by things such as the election of Donald Trump, like the Brexit vote and so on? I think so. What I've noticed, though, a lot of the people, although obviously you can't see who they are on a forum, tend to be mid mid to late 50s who are old enough to remember the 70s and maybe what their parents would have been like. Cause old enough m- to know better as yeah, well. Yeah, old enough to know better. My, my dad was a bit racist. I loved, loved, loved him to bits when he was alive, but he, he used to come out with some iffy stuff and I think it was just a generational thing. Oh, absolutely, but there is that difference, isn't there, as you're saying with these people who are currently in their 50s where there is a difference between a generational overhang 
and actually being someone who's currently cogent and operating in a society where we know these things aren't acceptable and still behaving in ways that are just completely barbaric. Yeah, but it's, you know, we've got MP to, an MP today talking about um, cultural Marxism when we know that that is now accepted as an anti-Semitic trope. Um, some people are allowed to get away with it with impunity. If it had been somebody from another political party who said it, it would have been all over the newspapers for six months. So, you know, you've got, you've got to have a bit of um, fairness going on there and it, it doesn't help it. You have, and it has to be regulated and addressed across the board. With that in mind, the regulatory bodies are getting involved with Montenegro. Yeah. Various uh, broadcasters and so on have been polling what people think should happen. So some options, for example, you could fine the Montenegrin FA. You could do a stadium ban whereby they have to play the rest of their qualifiers behind closed doors. Or you could take the most extreme route and actually ban them from the European Championships, which was, of course what the teams were playing to qualify for last night. If you were making the decisions, Nick, well, how do you think that this should be dealt with? If you see in the UK, there's a lot of cameras around the grounds. I'd hate collective punishment where if it's only 20 or 30 people in a crowd of 15, 20,000, it's really not fair to, to put that punishment on the rest. I, I think in the UK, you've got more of a chance to actually locate it. I know there's a lot of helplines now you can you can text during a game if you if you see anti-social behavior um montenegro it, it's difficult isn't it if you if you make them play the games behind closed doors then you're denying opposition fans the chance to go abroad see a bit of the world um but you can't brush it under the carpet personally i'd if i was a manager or a captain i'd take the team off i'd walk off the pitch yeah, which is something we've seen threatened in the Serie A a lot, where, um, for example, the Napoli Senegalese centre-half Kalidou Koulibaly sorry, has been on well the receiving remembered. end. He's a great player. The reason yeah. why I remember him is because I want to see him in the Premier League. He's been on the receiving end of some really unpleasant stuff. And uh, Napoli boss Carlo Ancelotti has now said, I have no more time for this. The next time this happens, we are walking off the pitch. In terms of punishing Montenegro, I see the point you're making absolutely about how you don't want to take football away from an entire country because of a few morons. But I suspect last night it wasn't a few people. I don't yeah. think we are talking about 20 or 30. Obviously, I wasn't at the ground. I haven't seen it. But at the point where it's audible to an extent where the players can pick out the chance yeah. themselves, the managers can hear the chance, and therefore you would assume that the match officials can hear the chance, that's not a few idiots. No. That's quite a large yeah. section of the crowd. And actually, you can argue about whether punishment is the solution to actually halt the racism, which should be the aim. Education, obviously, yeah, longer indeed. term needs to be the goal. But I personally, and I'm not saying this because it was directed at England players, it's nothing about national pride, it's about a basic human decency. I think just ban Montenegro, kick them out of the champ European Championships now. I, it's yeah. harsh. It's harsh on the players who weren't being racist, harsh on the fans who weren't being racist. But it's 2019, and we've surely got to be at a point where we're not taking any of this rubbish anymore. Indeed. I mean, there was cases in Poland a few weeks ago where they were having a whole stand with uh, homophobic TIFO displays. Homophobic displays. I, I, and they're, they're, they're in the EU. I mean, surely there's something supranational we can do rather than just keeping it national. Yep. Well, the governing bodies will have to take action and it will be very interesting to see the kind of response that Montenegro receive. 
The other potential negative side of an international break, of course, for a club side, and it's a less serious negative, it must be said, (laughs) is that your players can get injured. And in just a moment, we'll be talking on whether this break could have actually been quite damaging for Palace. This is Love Sport. You are listening to the Crystal Palace Fan Show on Love Sport Radio with Johnny Burrow and Nick Gillard. I've just noticed that on the running order in front of me, the section for date has just been filled out rather than with the 26th of March 2019. No thanks. Uh, so someone's not very keen on me. I'm obviously. a calendarist. You're a calendarist. I see. Yes, I hate calendars. I see. Well, I won't take it personally. <laughs> the one potential negative of this international break from a specifically Palace point of view is that various players who were expected to be involved for their nations weren't, and some of them because of injuries. So Wilfred Zahar didn't play. He was sent home with a hamstring problem due back a apparently on the 30th but this was also a 6,000 mile round trip do you expect him to be able to feature at the weekend he'd have had a lot of sleep wouldn't he on that flight Where's it? it's Rwanda, not restful wasn't it? though though it's not relaxing those the, any kind of traveling particularly a long flight that is knackering however much yeah, you sleep i suppose so i suppose so yeah it's a long way to go but i think we told them he'd pulled his hamstring i think was it the west ham game he might have done tweaked it Carried on playing a little bit. Should have done. Shouldn't have done. Um, was much missed against Watford. So I was very, very surprised when he went out. In terms of that, from an Ivory Coast perspective, do you, as a Palace fan, look at that and go, "You're selfish and irresponsible. Our key man has got a little niggle, a little injury problem. Don't be taking him on international duty. He needs a breather." Or do you see it from the Ivory Coast perspective of, "Well, he's our star man as well, mm. and he might get fit, so we're going to take him." Yeah, it's very important for them. I think he should go represent his country, even if he's if injured. He can. Well. Whether they believed Crystal Palace or not about him being injured, because you do get a lot of players pull out. Right, before... so let, let's have a chat about this then. <laughs> we saw, I, I, I'm really fascinated by this topic uh, because we've seen it a lot with the England team mm. in the last couple of weeks. We've seen it also with young lads who are still breaking into the England setup. I'm talking about the likes of Trent Alexander Arnold, of Marcus Rashford. There are loads more. And I'm not saying, and I hasten to add, I'm really not saying that these guys aren't injured or that they're deliberately missing England duty but there does seem to be a trend whereby these guys particularly playing for top sides who are coming into a run-in of a season where they're playing for a league title or Champions League qualification or whatever it may be look at an England game when it's against arguably lesser opposition in the form of the Czech Republic or Montenegro just go you know what I don't fancy it now, maybe they are genuinely hurt, but do you think we are seeing players prioritise club football over the international team? I think that's been happening for a few years now. Um, Famously used to happen with Ryan Giggs, allegedly, yeah. for Wales. And now he's the manager. And complaining <laughs> when his players do yeah, it, by the yeah. way. <laughs> Double standards. Um, I don't know, because I thought once um, Trent Alexander-Arnold had dropped out, I Wan-Bissaka. thought Wan-Bissaka would come in, but he wasn't there. And we thought, oh, maybe he will be for for tonight, for last night's game. Um, but he, he wasn't even picked for the under-21 Poland game. I, I don't really know, but there was an article, of, I, I was reading something, and it was stats about all the players. And there was a stat saying that James MacArthur had played more games this season than he's actually fit to play. I don't know how they work that out, but there's some kind of algorithm they go through 
that says how many games a player should be able to play a season. Now, if you go back to Liverpool in the 70s, I don't know if you were alive then, but they had 16 players all season. They won a European Cup. They won the league. One time they won the double. They were in all these competitions and they still managed to... um, to get through the whole season. Now, I understand football's a lot more physical than it used to be and maybe a bit more tiring, but are they getting a bit namby-pamby? Are you saying the game's gone, Nick? Is that is that what you're no, saying? No, no, it just seemed, seemed... I don't know if they were tougher in those games or the games got tougher, which makes it harder. I don't know. You could look at it another way, couldn't you? Which is that not only has the game got tougher, and I think you're right to say that, but also in that kind of Arsene Wenger-ish way, the sports science has got so much more detailed, so much more specific. Everything's being tracked and traced and measured so much more. What we're actually seeing is rather than the players being less up for it, the clubs having more data that enables them to look, for example, in the case of MacArthur and go, this bloke's played too much football, he can't play anymore. Well, actually, if MacArthur were playing in the 70s without all of that data and without all of that tracking flying around, he might go, you know, he's not thinking, well, Gaffer, I've played 60 games in the last 12 months. He'd probably just be thinking, yeah, I feel fine if we got at the weekend. Yeah. Uh, so it might be a sort of overprivileging of data over how the players feel. Do you think that currently club football is just being put ahead of the international game across the board? There's more money in the clubs. There's a lot of money at stake for clubs. And if you've got your best asset going out, like, for instance, we had with Johnny Williams, how many times did he get injured? Playing for Wales. Playing for Wales. Um, It was unbelievable. Um, So, yeah, but you want to see your national team do well. I think the fact that we've been a bit pants over the last few years, all right, we got to the World Cup semi-finals, so that's quite good. But I think a lot of people put their clubs over their country a lot more as well yeah do you think i mean you make a very good point about how much money there is in the club game do you think that the clubs i mean they don't have a duty to do it but do you think they have a right to go you know what we pay your salary your national team don't in the same way i don't want you to go there i want you to be fit for the running do you think they have a right to say i'm sorry you can't go and play for england that's a tricky question because yes you want to protect your assets but you know as a player, you'd want to play for your country, surely. That's, well, you'd that's, hope that's so, what, as a fan. That's what made me think about Trent Alexander-Arnold dropping out. You know, you'd, you'd want to grab the ball by the horns and, and go out and do the best for the free And Lions. he may be genuinely injured. We don't yeah. know. But in the case of Trent Alexander-Arnold, he hasn't played masses for England, and he couldn't have done. He's still a young lad. He's, um, he's sort of... Uh, He's still 20 years old and he has made five England appearances. Now, he's a great player. He's a great talent. I think we'll see him in the England team for many years to come. But at that point, however good your potential, you're a million miles away from being an established England international, my son. So you'd have thought that you should be absolutely chomping at the bit to play every single time you can for your country, regardless of the opposition. And uh, Yeah, and also, players who have played for their country get more bucks in when they come to transfer them yes and some players of course have clauses in their contract that are related to international appearances as well so perhaps in a rather awful way we're getting to a point where you have to monetize or incentivize international football to get the players to turn up from your point of view as a palace fan 
Do you ever look at a situation such as the one we saw in this international break with Zahar and go, yeah. you know what? I'm very proud to see you playing for your country, Wilf, but actually I'd rather you didn't. Get fit, play for us and just prioritise our form. I wouldn't want to deny him the chance, you see, to play for his country. If, he, if he's injured, they should take it as red that he's injured so he doesn't have to make that journey. Um, no, no, I want to, I want to see him do well. In even fact, if like, he was even... knackered and they were playing a friendly against Gabon. Where did you pluck Gabon from? That's well, a good thinking, one. Yeah. I was thinking of African nations he could play who are rubbish in a friendly. No disrespect. Well, some disrespect to Gabon. I'm sure no. they're lovely, but they rely on a See, I'd, I'd have gone for Lesotho, but yes, there you go. No, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> That's but, a good pointless answer, that but, one. <laughs> very good. But, you know, in the, in the context of a fixture that isn't important uh, by any metric, is it worth risking a player? Probably not. Probably not. Probably not. A lot of it depends where you are in the league, I suppose. If and there's you... also, there must be that pride as a fan of going, well, Wilfred Zahar is playing yeah. for the Ivory Coast at the top level. Yeah, I mean, we, we had a lot of pride when we had Andy Gray, Jeff Thomas, um, Ian Wright playing for England pretty much all at the same time. I think we had three or four players that were were in and around the England squad. So it does does give you a bit of cheer as a sort of low, lowly supporter. Um which just reminds me of the next bit, is the big club bias in choosing where they pick the players from. So do you subscribe to this idea? For anyone listening who, who isn't sure about this, this is basically the suggestion made by fans that international managers, particularly in England, pick players simply by virtue of the fact that they are on the books of a Chelsea or a United. So you could have a Ross Barkley, for example, who sits on the bench at Chelsea, who would get in the team over a James Ward-Prowse who starts for Southampton because Barkley plays for Chelsea. We did see, of course, Ward-Prowse called up eventually. He wasn't in the initial squad. Do you buy into this idea of a kind of bias, Nick? Yeah, because at Palace we have got the best right back statistically and I watch him all the time and I've, I've never seen a player, a defender as good as that since the days of Kenny Sansom and that's talking for either team. Maybe Des Walker few years later he, he always struck me as being a did, good defender but yeah he's he's just so good why didn't he get picked and you've got um the Chelsea chap who's never started a Chelsea game getting in there Hudson-Odoi that's the well one, he's yeah. not started in the league he has yeah, he yeah has I know he's been in, in European games but yeah Do I you... mean the, the the stats and the show reel will speak for itself with AWB. It's interesting in the case of Wan-Bissaka as well because you would have thought that his reputation without meaning any disrespect to Palace actually kind of outstrips that at Palace in that Wan-Bissaka has been so hyped this season and the stats are so good and the links to European heavyweights like Bayern Munich and yeah. Manchester City have been so prevalent that you'd have thought he in a funny way would come with that tag of elite player and yet he's still been overlooked and you're saying say he'd got a January move to Manchester United he'd have been in that squad? I reckon so. And they've also got to be careful because look what happened with Zaha when he was left out in the cold as it were. He, he went and played for Ivory Coast. Well, I'd imagine is... that most England fans, I know most 
fans that aren't Palace players will tell you they profess to hate Wilf Zaha, but they'd love him in the England team. Oh, I would love, love to have Wilfred Zaha in the England team, and I think it's one of the great errors, because, of course, he did play for England in friendlies, to not have played him in a competitive match and therefore tied his future to England, because he'd be a really handy player for us now. Uh, with that, it was interesting when you were saying how proud you were, rightly, of seeing these English mm. players play for England and Palace. Obviously, Wilf Zahar is absolutely idolised at Selhurst Park. He's a yeah. Palace boy through and through. You've seen him play for England, and now you're seeing him play for the Ivory Coast. I'm sure there's pride attached to both of those things. Yeah. But had he chosen England at the international level on a permanent basis, would there be an added little fleck of pride or love to see him in that kit rather than the orange of the Ivory Coast? For me, yeah. I don't know about, I, I can't speak for Wilf, but for me, yeah, because he's, he's one of our own. We've seen, I hate that phrase now, because everybody uses <laughs> it. Um, but we've seen him come through. I, I saw him make his debut and score a goal on his debut. And when you see a progression of a player like that, you, you just want them to do well. And yeah, we, we definitely missed a trick. Uncle Roy there. Uncle Roy. <laughs> bless him yeah not not always at his best uncle roy but we love him anyway we do and we will still invite him to christmas dinner coming up we will be talking <laughs> about the highlights of palace's season thus far this is love sport you are listening to the crystal palace fan show on love sport radio and it's the international break and palace are back very very soon so with that in mind we thought we'd take a moment to analyze our very favorite moments from palace's season thus far and there it is that's as good as it gets on this stage nissan townstar ev strikes again it's an unstoppable van unstoppable Look, just fantastic you can actually see the pro pilot technology in action effortless parallel parking it moves with all the confidence that comes with a five-year warranty and with a bench full of all-star van experts there's real strength in depth here that's all-star quality search nissan townstar ev and visit your local all-star van center to see for yourself Terms and conditions apply. Five years or 100,000 miles, whichever comes first. ProPilot is an advanced driver assist technology. Driver's responsibility to stay alert, drive safely and control vehicle at all times. Away days are great, but there's nothing quite like playing at home. The same goes for McDonald's. Maximise your home ground advantage with McDelivery. You in? Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. I don't, well, I don't want to leave dead air because I can only do that joke for so long before everybody <laughs> thinks their radio's broken. Um, <laughs> the biggest one has to be beating Man City 3-2, although we probably didn't deserve to, but we did. And I think I might have said it on the show last week, you always get one or two results a season where you upset one of the big boys. Um, and we really did then, because they were going for a record, weren't they, of um, undefeated games at their home ground. We showed we could mix it up. But that, and also we had a two-all draw with Arsenal earlier in the season, which we, we matched them pretty well. I, I don't know whether that was when they were going through their slightly low spell, but it it's just so frustrating that we can do so well against these teams and yet be so inept. We've lost against, um, we got bad results against Newcastle, Southampton, Huddersfield, we only scraped past 1-0 earlier in the season. We, we've really struggled to beat the teams around us. Um, and the teams we have beaten, we tend to have beaten them twice. I think we've done the double over Burnley. 
We've done the double over Leicester. And equally, the teams who beat you, I mean, I'm thinking Watford, who've beaten you three times this yeah. season, 2-1 being the scoreline every time. Why is it you think that you've got so consistent results against teams? You either can beat them or you can't. That's a million-dollar question. But looking, I've printed off some stats. Crystal Palace's season so far. We have made, um, on average, 411 passes a match. Now, I've seen Man City, they've been up to six and seven hundreds in a game, haven't they? Playing Chelsea as well have been playing unbelievable amount of passes. And you've got a 77% pass accuracy. So that means nearly a quarter of all your passes are either going out of play or to the opposition, which isn't good. Crossing. Successful crosses, 23%. That's not terrible. In terms, in terms of the broader averages of things. I mean, Marcus Alonso, who is the Chelsea left wing-back, who is rated by many as this glorious attacking defender, has a crossing percentage of something like 5%, I think maybe even below 5%. Because the thing about a cross-accuracy stat is you can put a really good cross in and it's still not count as a successful one because it can get because headed clear by a really good... nobody's got their head on it, yeah. Yeah. So, so it's not really a cross into a good area. It's a cross that's had a successful. It's a cross that end someone's of, got on yeah. the end of. Yeah, and the other one that was really, really low was the shooting. Twenty-nine percent shooting accuracy. Now, I've always come away from games thinking, "Oh, we were we were unlucky not to win that." But is that that's two out of three shots off target? Now, I don't know if that's got better since we got Batshuayi in. Since, because um, the start of the season, we we were really struggling for strikers. Hence getting uh, Jordan Ayew in. <laughs> now we seem to have loads of them again. Wickham was sub against Watford, I think. So he's, Do you think he's, he's got fringes. a future at Selhurst Park? I love him. He's a brilliant player. Not in a biblical sense, but as a player. <laughs> um He's just one of these players that can really, really turn it on. I spoke to some Sunderland fans before we signed him, and they said on his day he's the best player you'll see. But how often is it his day? About one in three games. Now, actually, I think he was starting to do a little bit better. But I just hope he's not one of those players that's going to be constantly on the operating table because he needs he needs to call it a day if he is. I mean, it's been a good couple of years, hasn't it, where he's been struggling. I I feel oddly about Conor Wickham in the sense that when he broke through at Ipswich as a kid, he was rated as this real, real talent, sort of a potential yeah. Shearer-esque England star. And I think he possibly flatters to deceive. I personally would back Batshuayi heavily yeah, yeah. over him in any kind of striking race. I think that shot percentage stat is a very interesting one because obviously it looks bad, and indeed it's not ideal, but there are other moments, I mean, if we talk about that City result, of course, there you see Andros Townsend score an absolute screamer where no one is expecting you to shoot from that kind of mm. range, let alone score. We've seen Milivojevic do it a few times this year as well, yeah. where he scored from outside the box. And there's probably an argument that the price you pay for the long-distance goal and the player who's willing to have a crack, of which Andros Townsend was born with a yeah. shooting boot on on his left foot, the flip side of that is that the stats probably won't look pretty because if you're shooting loads, you're unlikely to be accurate yeah. the whole time. Yeah, I see what you mean. Um, maybe he just um, engendered the spirit of Dan- Darren Ambrose then because he, <laughs> he was another. He was a player that 
scored some fantastic goals out of nothing and some brilliant free kicks, but he disappeared for the rest of the game. And it's, it's yeah, I'll, I'll come on to that later because we've got players that, that do a lot of good stuff in games but disappear for the rest of it or they're not very good and it's only the one or two little moments that keep them in the team. Jeffrey Schlupp, I'm looking at you. But <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, um, but yeah, we got we got a plethora of strikers. Um, we were talking about the highlights, weren't we? Batshuayi coming in was a highlight because we tend we we seem to get more goals from other places on the pitch. Because we we do have the 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 goal scoring is kind of spread around quite evenly among the team. I haven't got the figures in front of me, but I know obviously Luca with his penalties. Uh, Tompkins has had a couple this season. MacArthur still weighing in with a few. Um, Wilf, Wilf's been getting some. We just haven't got the the twenty year season goal scorer. Do you think that's a realistic aim for the club? Do you think that you could sign a twenty goal a season striker and hold on to it? We'd have to pluck them from obscurity. I think you couldn't go for a big name player, and quite a lot of times. It is a big gamble. If you go for a big name player and and it doesn't work, like it's happened with Benteke, in you're the then lumbered with his wages and all of yeah. that. I mean, I, I was going to talk about it later, but we could talk about it now. Do we need do we need to get shot of Benteke if he's not not providing the goods? Well, that's a big question. I think we're going to have to do that properly later because I can't <laughs> can't dismiss that uh, in just a minute. Coming up, we'll be discussing quite how. Palace can transfer those good performances against the Man Cities, against the Arsenals, into performances against the likes of Huddersfield. They've got to get it right ahead of this weekend. This is Love Sport. Been a difficult question to answer for Roy Hodgson this season. Why does his team perform really well against the likes of Man City, then struggle against arguably lesser opposition? Nick, why do you think this is? Is it something about the kind of players that Palace have going forward? They're expansive, they like having space to attack. That actually having a team who tries to play football is the point at which you're going to be able to best express your own game? I think so, because the. the the teams that are playing football are more susceptible to to making mistakes and leaving gaps that we can exploit and going on the break. But we do need to look more at build-up play. I know we play it, it seems to be a scourge of modern football at the moment because all the teams play it around at the back, almost as if they're going to a reset position. Would you rather see, say, Tompkins just hoof it forward? If there's a minute to go and we're 1-0 down, yes. But if if we're early into the game, um, maybe not. I mean, we, we like, to, like to see the attractive football in the build-up and we've got players that can do that. It's just mistakes that, that, that stop it. But I think with Roy and the big teams, it must be a motivation thing, surely. Because I know it's easy to mo when you when you've got to do something hard, you can make it motivate yourself a bit more to to do it. When it's something that you can, you know, in any anything in life, and something that you you think you can do and you'll be all right at, you don't give it that extra push. Or maybe I'm revealing too much about myself here, but um, <laughs> I don't know. It's it's the psychology of it. I'm sure it is because why can't you just? 
I don't know. I don't. I don't know the answer to the question. Is what is what I'm trying to get. At. But if it is that psychology, Nick, do you find that frustrating as a Palace fan? Because what that implies is that the quality in Palace's squad is sufficient to beat a Man City, to take points off an Arsenal, and therefore, if that psychological uh, psychological element can be sorted and replicated for every game there's no reason why you shouldn't be comfortably dispatching the likes of Watford for example yeah Newcastle and Southampton and all the other teams that are around us yeah um we should be it's hard isn't it I mean we're, we're we've got a good away record one of the best away records in the league is it because we're the underdogs when we're away is it because the style we play suits us more away and we it's been very rare that we've actually gone at a team straight from the off, um, which we did do a few times last season and, and kind of taken by surprise. I know DR, who is a regular on this show, is a believer that Hodgson should be more proactive, should get at teams earlier, and he'd like to see more of that. But on the on the psychology front, do you think there's an argument that Hodgson or whoever else is responsible at the club should be bringing a sports psychologist, a team of sports psychologists into the club and genuinely sitting down with the players, perhaps as a group and individually, and examining whether there is something mental going on? Because that suggestion that the home form could be because the players somehow thrive on that underdog status, there must be a way of helping yourself, of artificially engineering that that feeling of being up against it and then performing on a more regular basis. Yeah, uh, there must be, because other teams can do it. <laughs> and, no, and who've got similar sort of level of, of squad. We were talking about, you know, players in different squads and are they better or are they worse than Palace. Well, if, if you've got... Psychology is really, really important. Uh, you know, being a teacher, you know that what you can say to a child will really... Um, affect the outcome of the work they're doing, and it will massively vary from person to person. Some people, and and for even within each person, from where they are in their life at that point, some players, I'm yeah. sure, respond really well to the arm around the shoulder. Some need more of a boot up the backside, and it's probably about judging that. I mean, if for Palace, the case is that they just like to feel like they're up against it. Maybe the standard Roy Hodgson team talk should begin with with. You're all rubbish and we're going to lose. And then maybe they would suddenly come out firing. Yeah, I thought I was in the room with Roy then. <laughs> I really did the way you said that. You had the accent spot on. Um, yeah, the, the old Brian Clough method. Just hairdryer, whatever happens. Yeah, I, I don't see Roy doing that, though. I, it's hard to imagine him doing a hairdryer at all, I think. And that may be unfair. I'm sure he does get angry. I'm sure he's authoritative when he wants to be. But do you think that perhaps a slightly more robust manager, a younger manager maybe, would get them up for it a bit more? I think so. I think so. He's, Roy is fantastic. A fantastic manager. And a lovely guy. And a lovely guy. And, you know, that, that shouldn't really come into it. Um, yeah, they, they, I'm, I'm lost for words. They just don't seem to be at it as much. Would they you, should be. Would you be tempted to try out things on the pitch before you went down a sort of psychological route in the sense that a new system, a, a more attacking setup, perhaps, actually getting at teams, as you said, you have done occasionally, rather than just looking at it and going, well, hang on, there must be something on the mental side that's wrong. Could it actually be the case that tactically something could be tweaked? Could be. I mean, you look, we, we do set up 
as if we look like we're an attacking team, especially when we play four four three three with with Townsend and uh, Wilf on the wings and Batshuayi or whoever in the middle, uh, knocking them in. Um, and then you've got players like Max Meyer who are good at going forward. Um, Schlupp likes to get forward. Um, it's hard, isn't it? It's, it's really it, tough. It's a million and, dollar question. But if I, think I knew, this is, I'd be managing them. But, but, or perhaps you wouldn't. And I think this is illustrating it, Nick, where we're sitting here and we're talking about every possible permutation of potential yeah. solution. And actually, how do you work it out? And it's not necessarily the case that if you had the answer, you'd be managing them. Because I suspect, without meaning to be rude to Mr. Hodgson, he doesn't know either. Because if he did, the home form would be better. The results against the smaller teams would be more consistent. Uh, and it may actually... One can overanalyze and over-prepare and over-sports science, the whole thing in the modern game. Maybe it's just a case of trial and error and going, yeah. you know what, maybe we should this week, let's try a 4-4-2 or let's try a sports psychologist and just see if various subtle changes can lead to a more consistent improvement for the club. One man who may have those answers is Neil Shipperley, former Palace centre-forward. He's a man who knows a thing or two about getting a goal into the back of the net at Selhurst Park. And we'll be talking to him in just a moment. This is Love Sport. It is the Crystal Palace Fan Show here on Love Sport Radio with me, Johnny Burrow, and I'm joined by Nick Gillard of Back of the Nest in the studio. And I'm delighted to say we're also joined by sports journalist and Palace fan Max Matthews in the studio. He's just raised straight from the old Bailey. Don't worry, it wasn't him on trial. Max, how are you? I'm very good, thank you. How are you? Good, glad to hear it. Very well, thank you. And particularly well, because I'm delighted to say we're joined on the line by none other than Neil Shipperley, the former Crystal Palace centre-forward. Good evening, Neil. Thanks very much for joining us. I want to ask you about Michi Batshuayi. I look at him, and I'm not a Palace fan, but looking at the club from outside, he just seems like everything they've been lacking up front. Do you think the club need to make the deal permanent? Uh, yeah, evening, chaps. Uh, right, yeah, I, I, I agree, uh, to be honest. I think he's, he's exactly what we needed. I mean, we've got talent in the squad, but but for me, he's just got that, uh, you know, like they call it a football brain. You know, he really he knows what to do. He's, 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 he's you know, he's, he's a step above uh, what we had up front, I think. So, yeah, I don't know how much it's going to cost and whether it is feasible, but I know, but I think we spent a lot of money to get him in the first place just for the, the loan period. But, yeah, if it's an option, then uh, push the boat out and get him. So I do think he's a class player. Do you think, hello, ships? I, I met you on the walk. We were talking about dog tracks, if I recall. <laughs> and, and what, what, well, lack whatever. Of them now, isn't yeah, it? lack of a Morphenstow going missing. Um, he seems to have gelled well with the squad, doesn't he? Do you, do you think that's going to help if we try and sign him, or do you think he'll he'll try and get off to somewhere where he can play in a European competition? You don't know, do you? I mean, I think we had that with sort of Sacco, didn't we? We all thought that he'd, he'd go and stuff. And I know we had to spend uh, a lot of money and his wages are higher. But I think when you're at a club like Palace and, and the team spirit's good, which has clearly been seen over the last year or so, and, and he looks like he's enjoying his football again. And I, and I think that's a massive factor. If you are enjoying your football, I mean, there's no sort of, uh, you know, no one's on bad wages nowadays in the Premiership anyway. So I'm sure it, it get looked after. So if it is an option, I think that's a very important factor. I think it's something that they go for. Yeah. Hi, Neil. It's Max here. Um, obviously, you know a lot about leading the line uh, yourself. What do you think about uh, Alexander Serlot? Do you think he has a future at the club or do you think he left at the right time and, and won't ever get back in the side? Well, I think he, uh, I mean, he, he came on a few times. I don't think he was given a run in the side. 
uh, which I think a, a centre forward does. I think the jury's out. I mean, we are talking different levels here. He scored a load of goals in the in the Danish league. I think the knee and you know the, the, the scoring goals in that level and Premiership is going to be a lot tougher. Uh, I've I've not given up on him. I mean, I think he's banging goals in where he's on loan now. So, but I think you know it's such a tough deal this, this Premiership now. It, it, everyone wants it now, you know, rather than uh, let's give someone five or six games. So. Uh, like I said, I, I haven't given up on him, but now now he has gone and we have got back to right. And I mean, it's obviously there's 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 a big difference in class there. That's, that's the problem you got though in the Premier League, though, isn't it, Neil? Because you 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 haven't got time for players to bed in because you need the results. No, I mean the one thing I would say though is like we're talking about uh, Saul off as if he sort of you know come through the ranks, which he didn't obviously, and also we didn't spend a lot of money, which we did. You know, I, I think he was supposed to be our number one target at the time. And correct me if I'm wrong. I'm sure it was sort of uh, the other side of seven million, maybe eight million. Yeah. So I think I think questions do have to be answered there. You know, we're not we're not we weren't, we weren't taking a you know a kid. It was someone who we thought could could actually do it. Yeah, indeed. Neil, you were saying that you haven't given up on Sola. Have you given up on Connor Wickham? We saw him back on the bench the other day, but he's a guy who's always struggled with injuries at Palace, hasn't always scored masses of goals. Do you think his time at Selhurst Park is up or could we see a late resurgence? We could see a late resurgence, but he's down in the pecking order now. I think these all these strikers were going, you know, going for that number one place before we had Batshu White. There was sort of a, you know, maybe a month or so where I think that was a time where where we could have one of them could have could have shined. And and Connor Wickham, I do like as a player, but as you said, there he does does get injured. What we need is a very fit Connor Wickham, probably again the same as Sorloff, giving him a run in the side, which I just don't think Roy's going to. What was going to do, and I think I'm, I'm, you know, he's proved right now. But Benteke's on the bench uh, behind Batshuayi, and, and Connor Wickham, unfortunately, will have to wait if uh, if any of them get injured to to try and get in. Now, just can't see him figuring. Yeah, um, I'd, I'd say we're safe, although obviously not mathematically. I think we can we can actually relegate Huddersfield on Saturday, if I remember rightly. Um, what do you do for the rest of the season if you're the manager, Neil? Do you try and blood these new players in or try new formations? I know that James Daly's come back for the under-23 and, and netted a couple of goals today. And um, Luke uh, Dreyer has come in and he's been on the fringes. Is this the time to get the fringe players in or, or do you just try and build up a good run to go into next season with? Uh, one, I think we're going to need a few more games to be safe. I'm sure we will get safe, but knowing Palace, we'll need quite a few <laughs> of these eight, eight games. Uh, so, uh, And I do agree with you, uh, we should be doing it. But quite frankly, no, we're not. I mean, I remember the last game of the season last year and it was a nothing game, if you want to say a nothing game. But that's when I thought, oh, you're going to get Delaney playing to say goodbye. You're going to get this, you're going to get that. And he put out his most strongest side because I think it was worth so many more millions if we move up the table. So unfortunately, these are, you're right, once we get safe, these are the times where you have a look at these unproven players. But it just won't happen. And I don't know whether that's just boy. Uh, but obviously the business side of football now is huge and uh, I was quite disappointed that's when you do want it that's when I mean Clinton Morrison come on for me I know that was obviously years ago but that's how we you know that's how they get their chance you know come on for me and he got one and and then uh, you know he scored loads of goals for Palace so I'd like to see it but sorry to burst your bubble I don't think it's going to (laughs) happen Neil what's talking of bubbles bursting what's your take on Roy Hodgson we had a row on the show last week because DR who's a regular was basically saying he's had it 
and that it's time for Hodgson to go. Do you take that view as a change needed, or should he have another year or two? No, I don't at all. I, I, look, what, what, as far as I'm concerned, what he done last season, he deserves. You know, if we lost the next four, I wouldn't even panic with him. He's proven that he can do it. I know the fans get the ump because he doesn't make the subs and stuff like this, and some of his decisions. But no, I, I, I think people do dramatise a lot of stuff now. You know, if you don't play well for three games, you're you know you're the worst player in the world. And you know, I think you just got to get a bit of a reality check check about what actually happens uh, in football, who we lose to. Some Sometimes the only thing I, I was a little bit disappointed with at Watford, uh, which we you know we didn't play great, but when we did get that goal, I thought we're just just push now, go for it, boy. You know, put put a couple, let's let's go for them. I think they were there for the taking for that sort of ten minutes after, and uh, and we didn't. But but no, uh, I wouldn't change for it at all. No. Anna, following on even further from bursting bubbles, um, talking about the West Ham uh, playoff yeah, yeah, game, yeah. could you indulge a little bit of my nostalgia and talk to me about your memories of that game? Yeah, well, obviously you was there, otherwise I was going to start taking on a hot king kind of delight of how it went in top corner and stuff. But, <laughs> but no, uh, I, I can't do that. No, it was it was a game where we, we, we come from the dead, didn't we? I mean, Brian Dean, I think, got the uh, header for the playoffs. You know, it, it was a, you know, they could actually... Well, Leicester have obviously gone on and done better things, but the way we actually got that playoff final was remarkable. And and even on the day, they they were had a better team on paper. They all turned up in their brand new suits as if it's an FA Cup final. We had some tatty old uh, old track suits and stuff, and and we were marginally a little bit better than them. And, and fortunate for me, that's all that needs to happen. You just got to be at the right place at the right time. The old double shinner, and then it goes. <laughs> double I, shinner. <laughs> I, I thought West Ham were pretty arrogant on that day. The, the fans were arrogant, thought they were going to beat us. They, the, the team had yeah. already booked their celebration uh, do, or whatever you call reception, or whatever you called it in yeah. them days. Um, I think that let them down. I think they, they got too ahead of themselves. Yeah, well, that's that's that. I mean, that, that's, that's what happens in football. You know, at the end of the day, there's eleven players on there. The goals, you know, so it, it's, it will happen time and time again. When when the team get complacent and uh, think they've won it already, you know, it's not the first. It won't be the last. But yeah, I've heard all the stories them coming up in uh, limousines and, and giving it the the big one. So uh, it just made everything a little bit better. But my only thing is, it was in Cardiff and not Wembley. You know, my, yeah. my phone at finest uh, moment was in. It was in Wales, I'm afraid, yeah. Yeah, because, uh, we're, I nearly had a fight on the M4 on the way back because a West Ham fan banging on his car window. What are you smiling at? Well, we're in the Premier League. You're not. He got out. <laughs> Luckily, my brother's almost as big as you. And he, he was next to me and he got out of the car and the West Ham fan just got back in again and we, we kind of sat staring at each other in the traffic jam. But yeah, it was a brilliant day. I nearly broke my sister's neck celebrating. <laughs> it's it's weird. That seems to well, happen to Nick every time he's on the motorway. So I, I wouldn't read too much. <laughs> right. well, look, there's, there's, there's been plenty of times where we've had to wear old our head in shame and sulk and think we didn't get what we deserve. So when when it does come along and it happens, you got yeah, you have got to give it to some people who uh, who actually thought they were gonna gonna win it easy. So yeah. Yeah, things, isn't it? Up, up, up to that point, other than winning the old second division, I think the one before that was winning the third division south in oh. 1958. So, yeah, you do have to take these as they come. <laughs> Neil, it yeah. was a wonderful result. There are smiles all around me in the studio. Thanks ever so much for talking to us. Just before we let you get going, Huddersfield at the weekend. What do you reckon? What, who's going to win? Well, I am desperately worried about our own form. So we do have to perform. It's as simple as that. There's nothing worse than playing a team that are fighting for their lives 
and uh, almost, uh, you know, they probably know it's going to happen, but they ain't going to roll over. So we need to be on it. We've got enough quality, so I do think we will win. And uh, hopefully, well, we owe them from uh, last season when they, they beat us up at home. So uh, I'll go for a 2-0, 2-0 Palace. Optimism nice. from Neil Shipley. Thanks ever so much, Neil. Neil Shipley, their former Palace centre-forward. Lovely, that story about his goal, where he wasn't necessarily expecting the win. And also your story, Nick, about a potential altercation on the motorway. Why were they so unhappy that you were just smiling? I really don't know. I mean, you know. If you so can... the traffic was at a standstill. Yeah. And you were sitting in your car smiling and this bloke has got out of another static vehicle yeah. to come and ask you why you're smiling. Yeah. Because right. he had the um because he was a West Ham fan. And how could he tell that you were a Palace fan? Did you have your car pla- painted in blue and red stripes? No, I think we were just all there in our Palace kit. So you could see we were Palace fans. But he had the right hump. Really? Really it's... had the hump. Really weird to want to take it out on an individual in that context. You just think, come yeah. on, mate. Your yeah. team lost. Yeah, you're rubbish. Were, were you gloating at him? I might have said something about bubbles out the window, but right. Well, there was there was the word gesticulation was important on the show last week. Was there perhaps yeah. a bit of gesticulation going on? Um, no, I might, have, no might have might have rubbed my eyes a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> no further comment without a lawyer present. Don't go anywhere. This is Love Sport. You are listening to the Crystal Palace Fan Show here on Love Sport Radio with me, Johnny Burrow and Nick Gillard and Max Matthews of the Back of the Nest podcast. Now, the absolute priority for every modern Premier League club is saving the last part of that sentence, making sure that their Premier League status is secure and they remain a club operating in the top division. Palace, looking like they're sitting relatively pretty at the moment, 14th in the table, 33 points from 30 games played, so eight games left to play, with a goal difference of minus five, which is significantly better than the teams below them. But we often hear of 40 points as this kind of magic number that you need to stay in the Premier League. And Palace's running isn't necessarily all that straightforward. Huddersfield at home, Spurs away, Newcastle away, Manchester City at home, Arsenal away, Everton at home. Those three games a particularly nasty run. Then it's Cardiff away and Bournemouth at home. Max, do you think that there are enough points in that particular list of fixtures that Palace are completely safe? I think there, I think there should be enough points in there. Um, it's always difficult to, to tell with Palace because we tend to have some unbelievable, unbelievably good results and then some dodgy results towards the end of the season as kind of teams teams that are already safe you know might put out weaker teams and then we might beat them or you know Palace underperform because they kind of uh, they're they're coasting towards the end of the season I think overall there should be enough points in there but um, as as we all know it ain't over until it's over it ain't over till it's over that inconsistency is that cause for comfort for you as a Palace fan in that you can look at that fixture and go well City at home we've already beaten them this season Arsenal away we've taken points off them or does it go the other way and you look at for example this weekend and go well Huddersfield at home actually we could struggle it's the Palace way unfortunately <laughs> it really is it really really is you, it's it's been a feature of watching Palace for 40 years where you you get turned over by the lesser teams um, Huddersfield um, 
it's going to be a difficult one because he said, as he said to ships earlier, they're going to be fighting for their lives. Hopefully, Jason Punction won't have given too much away mm. about how we play. I know he's, he's not on the, um, he's not available to play because it's it's alone, isn't it? Um, but yeah, it, it, it I, I can see us beating Spurs away. Their first home game at the end you of the think you are going to ruin that particular party? We're good at ruining parties. Stephen Gerrard's <laughs> last you, game. you personally or the club as a whole? Well, whatever. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> <laughs> but you think that's a serious chance because I've got, obviously, the guys from Last Word on Spurs come in on a Thursday evening for the Spurs fan show here on Love Sport Radio from 7 until 9. And they're very, very clear about this new stadium not only they say is it a fantastic facility but the boost that it's going to give the players that it's going to give the atmosphere is such that they're saying they will win every single home match in the Premier League this season do you as Palace fans feel that you can ruin that on day one well as Nick mentioned we have got a history of doing it we it would be very like us to kind of be generous to Huddersfield and um and let them and and let them take the points away from us and then to beat Spurs away we beat uh, Liverpool in Steven Gerrard's last game at Anfield. We spoiled their title party. That oh, was fantastic. Christian Ball, that chest off for Murray onto Gale. It was just, that's my. What were they? They most, were 3 0 up, weren't they? That was one of the most incredible nights I've ever had at Celeste. It was just, uh, we didn't even win, did we? But it, it was just. <laughs> the glee. The glee of watching old um, Mr. Biter, Suarez. That's actually what his mum calls him. Really? (laughs) Apparently. (laughs) Um, Yeah, just watching him not even able to show his face. Mm. Um, Brilliant. Um, But then, yeah, we'll we'll go lose against Scunthorpe the next week. (laughs) That's the Palace way. But there will be some points in there. It might be inconsistent, but there will be results of some kind. With that in mind, currently sitting 14th in the table, 33 points with a goal difference of minus five. The situation in terms of the running is slightly different than it might be for teams in the bottom half of the table in the sense that, as I see it, Huddersfield, barring a miracle, are as good as down. Fulham, barring a miracle, are as good as down. So then you're kind of left with Cardiff City, Burnley, Southampton, Brighton, Palace and arguably Newcastle fighting for one place. It would have to go very, very wrong for Palace for you to go down, wouldn't it? Sort of spectacularly wrong. Yeah, but we always remember, what season was it, when Oldham performed an absolute miracle and sent us down, I think, on the last day. I'm not sure if that was the same. No, it wasn't the same season that Charlton sent us down in the last game. Um, But yeah, Oldham got us one year. And they they, they were not quite, I'd say they were more in Fulham's position than Huddersfield's position, but but they crept up and, and we went down on goal difference. Because we we thought we were safe. So you're looking at this table now, uh, presumably with a broad confidence, but still feeling that there is a very possible situation in which you do get relegated down to the championship. It's Palace. That's all <laughs> I can say. It's Palace. It, it It's not beyond the realms of possibility that it could happen. But I don't think it will. Max, what do you reckon? I'm I'm pretty sure. I'm probably 70-80% sure that we're going to stay up. I'm I'm quite confident in the team, but equally you can't allow complacency to creep in because that's when you that's when you get found out in the Premier League. There is really no easy game. 
with that in mind, and while there is no easy game, you're bang on, there are some games that are easier than others. And Huddersfield at home this weekend, which we'll touch on in real depth later in the show, we're going to have Ollie Fisher, who's a journalist for Football 365, and a Huddersfield Town season ticket owner, poor oh. bloke, uh, <laughs> on, on the line. That's the kind of game where actually you do have to be getting three points. There are no easy games, but Huddersfield at home has to be three points and do you think that the tone can be set the pressure can be taken off if you do get three points this weekend because then you're sitting there on 36 points you might even rise up to 13th in the table at that point do you think you are safe I think if we win at the weekend we're safe and I also think if we win at the weekend Huddersfield are down yeah, I think yeah. certainly the second. I, I feel for Huddersfield. I like this Huddersfield team. I was at the National Stadium last week, when they, the London Stadium, sorry, when they were 3-1 up against West Ham with 20 minutes to play and somehow contrived to capitulate and lose 4-3. And it was everything. In, in a 90-minute performance, 95-minute performance, as Chikorito can tell them with his winner, <laughs> um, it encapsulated everything that we as fans like about Huddersfield the underdog story the scrappiness the likability and also absolutely why they are not good enough for the Premier League because any Premier League team of proper calibre sees that out but I actually ended up liking them even more because I was in the press conferences afterwards and their boss Jan Sievert was there going you know what, we're, we're relegated. I, I know he didn't say it in so many words, but he was, he was pretty sure they were going down. He said, but we need to play with pride because the people who work for this football club are amazing. And then just started talking about the tea ladies and how great they are. And I thought, actually, that's what yeah. I want in a Premier League team. That said, as Palace fans, you'd probably be quite happy to relegate them if it kept you up, wouldn't you? You, you kind of described them as being, oh, yeah, everybody likes them. They're dirty. Dirty. Do you, do you remember do you the, not the like first them? game of last season? We had them at home, didn't we? 4-1 we got beat. And they smashed Zaha in the air. He was out but for got weeks to, they've, after they've that. They've got to, Nick. I mean, if you come up as a team like that from the Championship where no one gave you any kind of chance of promotion, no one gave you a prayer once you came up, you don't have the financial resources to compete. You have three players of actual quality in the form of Stankovic, Moy and... Carl and Grant, arguably. Surely you have to be scrappy. You have to not make it pretty, not easy for players like Wilfred Zaha because otherwise you're just going to get battered every week. Yeah, but there's there's being hard hard challenges or or smashing the life out of them, which is what they, they, they seem to be doing in that first game last season. Fair enough. So it sounds like you're actively not keen on Huddersfield. So would you relish sending them down at the weekend? Yes. <laughs> Max, would you be similarly delighted? Uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't go that far. I think you've <laughs> got to hate the <laughs> hate, hate the game rather than the player, because as as you say, every team is quite sensible, honestly. To, They've got to be pragmatic to, to be to be fouling Zaha. And if I was a manager of another team, as much as I, as I hate to say it as a Palace fan, I think I would tell them to target Zaha and to foul him, as Troy Deeney came out and admitted. So I don't hold anything against them specifically for that, but. Uh, I obviously would like the the three points at the weekend just for for our own perspective. Well, we'll be talking all about the Huddersfield game in great detail later in the show. For now, we as ever want to hear from you. You can get in touch on 0208 70 20 558 or at Love Sport Radio on Twitter. And coming up, we will be answering your questions. 
This. You're listening to the Crystal Palace Fan Show here on Love Sport Radio with me, Johnny Burrow and Nick Gillard and Max Matthews of the Back of the Nest podcast. As ever, we want to hear from you. The number is 0208 558 or it's at Love Sport Radio across the socials. And some of you have been in touch already with questions for us to ask. Nick, take us away. Paul Holden's left a question on our Facebook page. Uh, you can look up Back of the Nest on Facebook. Um... He wants to talk about entitlements and expectations. We seem to have... That's a lesser-known Austin novel, presumably. (laughs) Yes, very good, very good. Um, We don't expect to be in European places or entitled to. Are we we thinking too small? Should that be what we're going, going towards? You know, do we need to change our mentality and attitude? And if we're not doing that, what's the point? Well, bold stuff. Max, what do you reckon? I think I think you have to look at consolidating first and until we're completely set until we're in basically Watford's position kind of top half maybe I think we just have to think about I just think we have to about have to think about consolidation first because if you get to a point where you're spending a lot of money on players and then overspending on players and then you end up kind of 14th 15th towards the end of the season you're dragged into a relegation scrap if you do happen to be unlucky and you go down that season, you're really um, up a certain creek without a paddle. So I think that while obviously you do want to be ambitious and you do want to aim as high as you can to look forwards as far as you can, I think that we have to kind of do it quite sensibly, do it quite slowly, not spending beyond our means. Because as we know, we, we did that in the championship and that, that didn't end up too well. Yeah, yeah, that's that, that's the problem, isn't it? Um by the way, Paul's expectations are that Palace are a mid-ish table, mid-finishing table, with the odd trip to Wembley. Um, and we're sort of like Everton in that way, um, in that we're not going to, you know, pull up roots and, and do a Leicester one season. But it can get a bit dull. I, I think I might, may have said it last week, or I may have dreamed it. Dreamed it. But... Um, <laughs> Do you often no, dream about the Crystal Palace fan show on Love Sport Radio? I Nick? often dream about football, playing for them, win, winning the cup. I still do that, even at my um, my age. It's not going to happen, though. Um, yeah, we we, we want to get further. But I, I kind of miss... I think what a lot of fans are missing is the fact that in the Championship, we always had something to go for in the fact that we could achieve promotion. We're not going to win the league. We'll be very, very lucky if we do get into Europe, and if we did, well, look at Burnley this season, you know, it might be a bit of a poison chalice. A few few away games, you know, it'd be a good laugh in Europe, providing we don't play Montenegro. <laughs> and, um, yeah, it's, I don't know, it's, it's, it's hard, because do you want to go and see your team finish midweek, uh, mid, mid, midweek, uh, mid-table, or do you just, like me, just like going to football regardless of what division we're in and it's that 90 minutes out of life where you can just forget about everything else that's going on and focus on the pitch and, you know, it's, it's what you want to get out of football. But expectations, I think, can be too high for some fans. With that word entitlement, I think that's a very interesting question in a footballing context. What, as Palace fans, do you feel that you're entitled to? We are entitled to nothing every point every position we have to earn we have to play for I think when normally when you talk about entitlement you talk about teams who are kind of formally very very good 
and have maybe kind of dropped off the radar now. I don't know, maybe teams like Aston Villa, teams like Leeds, recently teams like Chelsea, um, and they say, oh, you know, we're a Premier League side if they're kind of 14th in the championship. And, and I, I, I don't think that really washes. I think you've got to... You've got to view it kind of year on year, and you're not entitled to anything. You've not got even to... a certain kind of football. No, I don't think so. I think you, you it, you've got to, you've got to be kind of realistic. And if Palace finish thirteenth, that's where we deserve to finish. Well, yeah. No, yeah. no such thing as entitlement at Selhurst Park. You take what you're given, and you're very thankful. And if you're requested, please, sir, may I have some more? Met with the steely gaze of Roy Hodgson. That's just what happens. That said, I'd like I'd like more than three own wins for me six hundred quid. I'm forking out on a season. Yeah, you see, they're coming through now. The entitlements, they are coming through. No, but you you expect more. You do. You do, and that's in, that's entirely fair enough. And that's why I went to Watford away. I thought, oh, I'll get to see us win. <laughs> but no. No, not Let to be. Down. Do you have more questions in? No, that was it this that was week. It. It's been that a bit it. of a fluster what we've offstead. Uh, no, no, no. And it's and whatever in, in, I've international break and all of that. Coming up, we'll be talking what should we do with Ben Teke. But before that, Max, one thing that Nick and I touched on earlier in the show was this question of Connor Wickham who's back on the bench, potentially back in action for Palace. Do you see him as someone with something to offer, or do you think possibly this is an injury crock whose time has been and gone? I think when he's on the pitch, he's worth having at the club, and he's worth having as a squad player, possibly even a starter. I do think he really does have something about him. Unfortunately, it's just that getting him off the treatment table getting him off the bench and uh, and onto the pitch. And the, the trouble is now is that obviously we have Batshuayi uh, in on loan and then, you know, at the end of the season, we've got Solov coming back as well. Even if he is kind of fit, he hasn't got the match fitness and so might not be trusted to come off the bench. And the same thing with Bakary Sacco. So I think that if he can get on the pitch, it would be great to have him and we should have him at our club. But if not, then we might think about letting him go. Well, the problem for Palace is no longer a the numbers of strikers it's about who to use and coming up we'll be discussing how do you solve a problem like ben teke this is love sport we've just been discussing man cading which is which is not the kind of thing that you get criticized for on the tube it's to do with cricket <laughs> and stumping people out when they're out of their creases max just quickly explain what this is for us so this is uh, when the bowler is coming up to bowl and the batter at the bowler's end is out of his crease. The bowler, instead of bowling, stumps them very quickly as they're out of their crease. It is not against the rules to do it, but it's kind of seen as unsportsmanlike, ungentlemanly. And the recent controversy around this was when Ravi Ashwin in the IPL stumped Joss Butler. Subsequently, Butler's team kind of collapsed and lost and there was a big furore afterwards. You'd be great on Give Us a Clue, because you were doing all the actions when you were saying, and you stumped them when they're not <laughs> in their crease. If only people could see what you were doing there, Max. That was brilliant. I, th- I think that's interesting in a footballing context as well, though, isn't it? Because you can look at this in two ways. You can go, well, it's just not cricket, and Joss Butler's a good, honest lad, and to stamp him out in those contexts is simply unacceptable. Or you can go, actually, that's quite cynical and quite clever and well done, cynical in a sort of... Disney villain effective way but the problem there seems to be that what's the rule you know are they warned once and then you're allowed to stump them or is it somehow based on gentlemanly conduct do you think in sport more broadly I mean it's a bit like when a striker kicks the ball out of the keeper's hands do you think that we can expect players of any kind of 
athletic practice to be sporting or is it on a fundamental level just about winning and if you can do something slightly cheeky to win the game then do it money has rid the game of corinthian values i'd imagine but do you think it is money or do you think that these guys who are athletes at the top level are so fundamentally competitive that actually the win for most of them comes above all else and sort of has to if you're going to make it at that level in, yeah, you're right. I mean, a player I can't abide, um, Paolo Di Canio, one, one season actually could have scored but stopped play because the goalkeeper was injured and he actually picked the ball up and said, look, the goal is injured. I'm not going to score past him. Um, I don't think many players would have done that. No, we have seen instances. There was one, I think Miroslav Klose playing for Germany. The referee gave a penalty when he had just kicked the ground. And he said, no, ref, I kicked the ground, goal kick. So we do see sportsmanship. But I think we've got to a point probably in sport where when I see someone exp- uh, uh behaving in a particularly gentlemanly manner, you would obviously praise that in that instance. But I don't think it's the expectation. It's difficult, I think. Obviously, winning is so important in professional sport, as in um, as an amateur sport, as anyone who kn- who's played against me in five-a-side will know very well. But I think <laughs> you do need to have a kind of certain level of cynicism and trying to exploit the rules. and you Gamesmanship. Know, yeah, gamesmanship. Because when you're talking about taking your time, in inverted commas, towards the end of the game, I would say broadly that's kind of seen as all right, even though it's annoying. Whereas... For example, if you are given a throw-in to kick it back to the keeper and you just play on, I would say that's kind of considered not all right. It's really difficult to kind of draw the boundary as to what's... It's contextual, isn't it? Yeah. Difficult. Difficult. It was. It is. Well, it's a question of changing perceptions of things as well. And one man at Palace who's had the perception of him change pretty quickly is Christian Benteke. He came in with a pretty hefty transfer fee highly rated from Liverpool okay it didn't work for him at Anfield but he was still dining out on some very prolific seasons with Aston Villa where do you stand on him now he's been injured he's come back in he came off the bench against Watford nominally to change the game and completely failed to do anything do you think that he is still the man for Palace or is it just time to cut your losses there was talk of us cutting our losses and selling him to China for kind of around 20 million was the was the mooted fee I, I was I was torn on it because when he when he's on form he is a top top player. We saw that in his first season he scored 17 goals in all competitions, kept us up almost single-handedly, and is a very very good player. You've seen you've seen him score for Belgium. You saw that his overhead kick against United on one of those rare occasions he got on for Liverpool. And there is a real player. That was in there early. Somewhere. That was sort of his first Liverpool goal, wasn't it? It almost? was early. It was early and. He's, he has shown that he can do that for Palace, but he hasn't been that player for almost two years. So I really don't know how, how we can get the best out of him. I, I did kind of give him a bit of a break when I found out that he'd been carrying a knock and playing on with the knock and, and was just wondering. I mean, there was a moment last season where we got a penalty and the crowd actually begged him to take it and he did put it away. But then a lot happened that time when he took the ball away from Luca. What game was that in? Did we lose the game in the end or just draw the game? Oh, but was that Bournemouth? It might have been, yeah. And he snatched the ball out of Luca's hands and it was the worst penalty ever, wasn't it? Really, worse than Jason Punctions. Um, <laughs> and I think he lost a lot of confidence there. It, it, it's just been too long we're thinking, well, he'll get a goal and then he'll be back and he'll be back on form. But, but has he peaked? I mean, he's 28 now, which is sort of getting oldish for a striker, isn't it? 
Well, this is the question. And Max, one phrase you used is he hasn't been that player for some time. We've seen it with really top strikers recently. We saw it with Fernando Torres when he moved from Liverpool to Chelsea. We seem to be seeing it with Alexis Sanchez since his move to Old Trafford. It does seem to be something that can happen where a striker can go from prolific to basically useless in quite a short space of time. Do you think that's actually happened to Benteke and that his good years are behind him, that 28 is beyond it? Or actually, should he be moving into his peak years and could he still get back to goal-scoring form? Because there was a time in his career where he was genuinely feared. Yeah, I don't think it's an age thing. I think age-wise, he should be kind of at his peak. I think it might be more an injury and a confidence thing. So, as, as Nick mentioned, he played through... A lot of last season uh, with a knock, with an ongoing knock that he never managed to quite get over. And the trouble was we didn't have a backup striker. So basically we had to play him, uh, which isn't a problem we have this season. But also it's a confidence thing as well, particularly for a striker. I feel like a left back wouldn't have a confidence crisis. um, But hitting the back of the net really is about kind of the swagger that you have and the self-belief that you have. Um, I think think we can get it back out of him, but I'm not sure... I'm not sure if it's going to be this season because at the moment, Batshuayi looks like he's the number one choice. And we've heard a lot of strikers talked about on this show. We've had Conor Wickham, we've had Alexander Sorlet. The system that Palace play, that 4-3-3, which is kind of the best one for you, does only call for one central striker. And if Batshuayi does stick around, if he is the main man, you've possibly got enough game time there to give one of those guys a chance. That's before we've even touched on Jordan Ayew. So if you had to pick one of Wickham, Benteke and, say, Ayew, who you were going to go, you know what? Actually, no, let's go with Sorloff. Here you go. Well, okay, we've got a bit of faith in you that there is more to come. We'll give you a chance as second striker. Who would be your choice? I'd like Benteke to do well. I think the fans are behind him still. um, There was a bit of time where they weren't because of the penalty snatching incident. But we do we do want him to come good. Um, With the Batshuayi thing, yes, he'd be my first choice. But unless we're keeping him next season, we want to get another player. We we want to get Benteke in, I think, to um, find his scoring boots again. I agree with that. Actually, I think that. If it if it kind of becomes evident that Batshuayi isn't going to come to us, whether that's for price reasons, whether that's because Chelsea get a transfer ban and they don't really have another striker, um, I think we do need to kind of integrate Benteke back into the team. I definitely think the two Belgians are our best two strikers. And they seem to get on as well. There are photos of them in training, smiling, yeah. having a laugh. Absolutely, yeah. And, and so for that reason, I think we need to get uh, Benteke back in. Okay, and he's the kind of player you need. I mean, a lot was made in the first half of the season where Palace was seen to be lacking a striker of the fact that Benteke isn't mobile or dynamic in the way that that front three kind of seems to call for with the likes of Zahar and Townsend. Do you think he's the man to get the best out of them? Possibly. If he can keep up with his hold-up play and distribution, I think that's where he's stronger rather than scoring, Um, which is what... I think I miss about Murray. I mean, I'm taking, saying that um, he's he's old at 28, but Murray's in his mid-30s, isn't he, and still doing it. So I've kind of undone my own argument there. Well, I mean, it's going to vary from player to yeah, player, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, he's he 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 hasn't been an out and out and out goal scorer, but he has been crucial in in holding up play for the rest of the team to catch up. 
when we're breaking forward. And he's, he's excellent at that, holding the ball sort of edge of the centre circle. I agree. I, I'd actually argue that he's a better player for Palace's system than Batshuayi is, but Batshuayi is just a better goal scorer. Yeah. So Batshuayi is more likely to give you kind of an instinctive finish, more of a poacher, more likely to instinctively hit the back of the net. But based on the fact that we often play a lot of long balls from defence to kind of get us up the pitch very quickly, I think the kind of more target man role which Benteke offers is is more important to us. I think that's interesting. So it sounds like you're confident in giving him another chance. If he were to leave the club, what kind of fee would be the minimum you'd take? Packet of Ula Roops and a bottle of Dr Pepper. No, I don't know. Cheaper I don't know what price. wages he's on. Um, Probably you know, brings... more than that. Yeah. The full meal deal, I think yeah. we're talking. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it's a difficult one. Do we want to make the most money out of him that we can? by selling him sooner rather than later? Or is his stock so low now because he hasn't been scoring that we wouldn't get that money? Do we need to play him for another year so that he he does start getting confidence and getting goals? Or is it too much of a risk? Sorry, I'm, I'm asking questions, not answering them, no, aren't I? it's good. Max, you now have to answer them. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Sorry, Max. <laughs> I'm sure a club like Delian Yifang or someone else would, would take him for 20 million-ish because, you know, they signed Graziano Pella who wasn't exactly ripping up trees at Southampton for a, for a pretty decent amount. Um, I think there will be te- teams that want him. Uh, so we do have the option if we decide to sell him. And if we do, I, I would be looking for kind of minimum 20, given what we paid for him. Minimum 20. What did you pay? Sort of 25? I think 27 rising to 32, something like we, that. Wow. I don't even think we've finished paying for him yet. Probably not. Because it's, you know, we, we think transfer fees, you know, it's just one... In, the, in George Graham Day's brown envelope, but no, it's over stages. I, mean, I don't know if they've got monthly direct debit, but it's like yeah. a sofa that you buy on the monthly basis, and then you're still paying for it even when you've spilt your coffee on it in a rather frustrating way. Yeah, yeah. Exactly Sorry, Christian, right. that wasn't a very flattering analogy, no. was it? I'm, I'm sure he holds his coffee but very, just, very just, stable. Just to take us back very quickly to what we were talking about before, do you remember when Benteke was playing for Liverpool and he got that last minute, very, very iffy penalty? He was the most hated man in Palace fans' eyes for a bit. And then he signed for us and everybody forgot about it and said, what a great bloke he was. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you've got to move on, haven't you? Moving on, our focus now has to be, as Palace's is, uh, on Huddersfield at the weekend. It's Huddersfield at home. It could be a banana skin, but it has to be three points and in just a moment we'll be talking to ollie fisher who's a writer for football 365 and a huddersfield season ticket holder the poor lad to get the opposition view this is love sport (laughs) the run-in is of crucial importance for crystal palace and they can start the rest of the season in the right way with three points against huddersfield this weekend But uh, the Terriers showed against West Ham that they are far from a light touch. I'm delighted to say that we're joined on the line by Ollie Fisher, who is a writer for Football 365 and also a Huddersfield Town season ticket holder. Ollie, thanks ever so much for joining us. Do you look at Palace and think that this is a chance to get three points? Um, In the grand scheme of things, you know, this season hasn't been ideal at all. Uh, we've gone into most games thinking that we've got a chance of three points and then, you know, sort of towards the second half of the season, it's like, if we get a point, it's an absolute miracle. Uh, but, you know, we our first ever Premier League game was away at Sellers Park against Palace and we won 3-0. Um, what we're kind of hoping for is that Palace are a little bit complacent and that we can capitalise on that. But, you know, like every week, I'm going into it thinking that we're going to be soundly beaten. <laughs> 
Do you, do you, do you think you're, you're going to be better prepared for next season, having had a couple of seasons in the Premier League? Uh, it's always a difficult one to judge because obviously the first season, the focus was just on getting over that finishing line. And particularly towards the last 10 games of last season, the finishing line was always in sight. So everything was put, all that effort was put in towards just finishing above the dotted line. And we did it with two amazing results away at uh, Manchester City and away at Chelsea. Whereas this season, I think it's been very obvious from probably about November that um, that we, we're kind of out of ideas. And uh, obviously Wagner leaving was a massive shock to the system given the stability and the, and the growth that he's given us since he arrived at the club. And then... You know, Jan Sievert's come in and he's trying to implement his own ideas, that kind of thing. And uh, we're kind of in a bit of a what feels like a transitional period, uh, even though it's the best period in our club's recent history. It still feels like a bit of a transitional period. So with regards to next season, I don't really know. I wouldn't expect us to challenge for the top two or anything like that. But, you know, top 10 surely isn't with the squad that we've got, even though we might lose a couple of players. With the squad that we've got, top 10 surely isn't too much to ask next season. Ollie, what's the perception of Jan Siva around the club? Because obviously the results haven't gone his way, but he's a young coach. He's fairly highly rated. I was in his press conference the other week and he also seemed like a mm. genuinely nice man who cared about the football club. Do the fans like him? Do they see him as the man to take the club forward next season? Yeah, I think the fans definitely like him. I think, you know, like you said, he, he comes across very well in his press conferences and in his media appearances. He comes across as a guy who actually, you know, wants to turn the fortunes of the club around, very much like Wagner did when he first arrived. Um, the problem with him is, I guess, that he's going to be compared to Wagner in everything that he does. Um, and it's quite a tough act to follow in the sense that, you know, like I said before, he's he brought us the most successful period in our club's recent history but I think that Siva is is not like Wagner in terms of the tactics that he's deployed so far he's shown that he's willing to make changes he's willing to drop players that were before considered to be favourites um, and he's willing to experiment and that's kind of where we're at at the moment is to, to establish you know who are the round pegs in the round holes who's going to be around for next season and who are going to be the the players that are going to lead our charge uh, hopefully back back into the into the Premier League if not at the very least into Premier League contention. So I feel like on the whole, people are still well behind Sievert. But the thing with football is if he was to lose the, the remainder of the games between now and the end of the season, you know, the nature of football, it's a cutthroat industry. Um, people might change and say that he's out of his depth or whatever. And that, that's just the way that the sport is. Yeah, I noticed you say uh, looking behind your, your sh shoulders for two seasons. We've been doing it for eight years or seven years since we've yeah. been here. It's, it's, uh, it doesn't end. Um, Jason Punction, I know he had a falling mm. out. How's he been for you this season? Because I, I, well, I, I thought he was on his way down. He's sort of peaked and he dropped a couple of levels compared to what mm. he'd, he'd been before, what we knew he was capable of. How's he, how's he fitted in there? Well, I think with with all respect to Punchin, because obviously he's been a he's been a pro at, at the top level for a number of years. Um, he was kind of an underwhelming signing in the sense that we needed a miracle worker, um, <laughs> and what we got was a workhorse instead. Um, and the thing is, Punchin arrived, and I thought for the first, I would say the first four or five appearances that he made, he looked really good. Um, I thought he looked he showed a willingness to get on the ball. Um, Often he dropped deep and then turned and tried to tried to spin the play, and that's kind of exactly what we needed. But 
you know, like you mentioned, I think he's had a falling out with Siva somewhere along along the way, and uh, you know, with his contract expiring at the end of the season, I believe. Um, yeah. And, you know, him only on loan with us until the end of the season and him seemingly not really going to be... You might get in the match day squad, but he, he's not going to be relied upon as a starter. Um, I really don't know what the future holds for him, uh, which is which is disappointing because, like I say, I liked what I saw of him, but um, sometimes it's as much off the field as on the field when, when things are as bad as they are at the moment at Huddersfield. Uh, I think anyone can, anyone can see that Huddersfield's trouble has been goals and that's kind of been somewhat solved by the signing of Carlin Grant from Charlton um, do you think you would have had a better chance of staying up if you'd signed him in the summer? Uh, probably not in, in all honesty <laughs> with you. Um, what I love about you Ollie is you're always optimistic <laughs> Typical Yorkshire attitude though, isn't it? Um, no, I, genuinely I, I don't think so. I feel like uh, some players are a victim of circumstance, whereas some some players are a, a benefactor of circumstance. And I feel like Callum Grant has come in um, with not an awful lot of pressure on his shoulders. He was very much signing for next season um, for a low fee. Uh, he's come into and he's been played a few times in a position where everyone else has been absolutely dross this season so far. So he couldn't really do any worse. Uh, and what we've seen is, you know, he scored a goal against Arsenal. Um, albeit I don't think it was actually his goal, but you know that's that's another debate. And um, he scored two fantastic goals away at West Ham. Um, and I think I said in the West Ham preview that he would be the main threat for us, so I'm taking credit for that. <laughs> well, uh, the, se- but, yeah. the second goal, Ollie, is absolutely oh, spectacular. Gorgeous, an absolutely gorgeous goal. And that's what we've been missing all season is somebody in the final third who's willing to actually take a man on and have a dip from distance and uh, and. You know, it, it was a wonderful goal, and I just feel like you know, between now and the end of the season, we've got to be starting him every game it, it, as long as he's fit, because um, you just don't know the kind of impact that he could make. And if he goes into next season with confidence, he could be the real player to make a difference for us next season. I I don't want to be presumptuous and say that that you're going down because it, it's rude, but you're going. <laughs> that's fine. That's fine. You can make what. You know, it's what have you liked most about your time in the Premier League and what has done your head in about the Premier League? Um, I think it's very simple in terms of what I've liked the most. It's been that I've never seen the town of Huddersfield as united as it has been um, since we've been in the Premier League. I feel like it's brought everybody together. You know, you might have seen before kids walking around in Man City and Man United shirts. And since we were good in the Championship and we were mounting that promotion push, and especially since we've been in the Premier League, there's been Huddersfield shirts everywhere. There's been Huddersfield flags all over the town centre. It's been celebrating what is a massive achievement for our club. Um, but, you know, at the same time, the thing that I've disliked about it is that from a fan point of view, I don't feel like the Premier League experience has been everything that it's kind of cracked up to be on the face of it. Um, and, you know, I think there's a, there's a massive thing about um, seeing your club at a level that you've never seen them before and that it feels quite alien. Um, And, you know, next season when we're in the Championship, it'll all feel a lot more realistic and a lot more a lot more like like the club that I'm used to following but at the same time I wouldn't I wouldn't change it for the world you know we've had two years in the big time it's probably loaded the club's club's bank account and um, mm. you know my first season watching Huddersfield we had absolutely no money at all we got relegated into the fourth year of English football um, and we had to play a load of academy players the next year and you know you look at where we are now in terms of probably having 
quite a healthy financial position and having a couple of years Premier League experience under our belt, you know, we really can't complain. Well, there is still some Premier League football to be played, even if it is just for the rest of this season, Ollie. And the first of those is obviously the clash against Palace. If I had to press mm. you for a score prediction for the weekend, what would you go for? Do you know what? Even a broken clock's right twice a day. So I'm going to say that we're going to get a 1-1 draw. A 1-1 draw. That is actually optimistic, I think, Ollie. Yeah, so I, I take it all back. Thank you, as ever, for joining us. Wonderful stuff. No problem. Ollie Fisher there, who's a writer for Football 365 and Team Talk, and also a Huddersfield Town season ticket holder, who refreshingly doesn't think that the world will end should his football club get relegated from the top tier. Stay with us here on the Crystal Palace Fan Show, because in just a moment, we'll be discussing how the Palace team should set up. This is Love Sport. You are listening to the Crystal Palace Fan Show here on Love Sport Radio. And we heard from Ollie Fisher just a moment ago how Huddersfield are likely to approach this weekend's game, whether whether they see Palace as a threat. We'll be touching on how Palace should set up in just a moment. But before that, there's international football going on tonight, of course. The England under-21s are currently one all with the German under-21s. Dom Solanke on the score there for England. But there's a more important international result or half-time scoreline, I should say, for England, which is that the Czech Republic, who at the end of last week were, of course, humbled five goals to nil by England, are currently 1-0 up against Brazil, which means I can say absolutely nothing, but it's coming home by the flags now. But before we worry about any of that and get slightly ahead of ourselves, slightly carried away, there is the matter of Huddersfield and Palace at the weekend. How would you like to see Palace play? Is this a case of taking an opportunity to experiment or is it just play it safe, the strongest possible eleven, and get three points on the board? I would say until uh, we're mathematically safe, it's got to be pick the strongest team. Yeah, we've, we've, we've paid a lot of money to go and watch our team this season. It'd be nice to see us take some points away and leave the ground smiling. Would you be satisfied with any result other than a win? I'd be a bit meh because it's the end of the season. Whether the players will be on the beach, I I I just want to see us win some more games because it's it's demoralising only winning three in the league at home. All right, we've won a couple of cup games, but we 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 need to to give the, the home support what they deserve for the backing that they give the team. How about you, Max? Talking about entitlements and expectations, <laughs> uh, would a draw be enough? Uh, I would expect that we'd win. I think. If they got a really fluky draw, you know, you might be able to chalk it up to kind of bad luck. But equally, we've said that a lot of times this season where, you know, we drew nil-nil with Cardiff and we had about 30 shots on target and we should have beaten them. Uh, I think a draw could just about be all right with uh, with the majority of Palace fans, but a loss really wouldn't be acceptable. OK, so we're, we're accepting that possibly three points aren't critical, but it should really be three. A lot, a lot of Palace players... Fans really want to finish above Brighton as well, right? And that's quite close. So there's that kind of little, little rivalry going on there that um, we we have to be higher than them, and perhaps an added motivation for the players as well. With that in mind, three points becomes rather more important. And how should Roy Hodgson be setting the team up to best get a good result? Uh, I think if Sacco and Wambisaka are out injured uh, as expected. I think you've got to have uh, you've got to have Scott Dan and Joel Ward in there. And a few years ago, these were kind of integral players in our team. 
absolute cornerstones of our defence, definite first choices. And so I think it shows the strength of our squad that now when we're talking about players injured and kind of replacements coming in, we're lucky to have the to to have built to built built the squad to the extent that we have uh the likes of Dan and Ward coming in. Um if Zaha's out then you know, we we might be stuffed in attack, but probably play Schlupp on the wing and Mayer in the centre at home. I I'm surprised I see I've I've been liking Kelly since he's been coming back. Would you pick Dan over Kelly? I would. Okay. So cause... that's Kelly at centre half. Yeah. Although he can play the uh full back as well. Although we, we saw last time that Schlupp played at full back uh against Watford. Uh I don't know whether PVA was injured because he wasn't even on the bench, was he? Um and he's been poor lately, PVA. Who who would you pick out of those two, PVA or Schlupp? Because I think we missed. Well, if Schlupp's Schlupp playing further, as a winger, then you have to play forward, Van Aanholt. Yeah. It's a difficult one. I I do think that that Van Aanholt really has disappointed me this season. And given that there were probably kind of um, spurious rumours that he was off to Juventus or something like that, they were interested in him just kind of as an attacking fullback who wouldn't have to defend, which is almost his perfect role because he can't really defend. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. <laughs> um, I think I think he has been disappointing. And if we had Zaha in the team, I think I'd want Zaha left wing and Schlupp left back, but we might be forced to play him. Tough. Tough. Is there a question of not wanting to risk Zaha's fitness? Or if we're talking about three points and the strongest possible team being vital, is there a case for just going, well, he's probably fit, let's just throw him in? From a selfish, entitled supporter perspective... Expectating point of view. We have got four home games left. So you want to see Zaha? There is a possibility that he might be off in the summer. I want to see him as much as possible. Okay, and Max? That's just being selfish. Ideally, yes. We don't know how he's going to come back from uh, the Ivory Coast game and that whole trip. Um, I've been kind of following him a little bit on Instagram and he's posting pictures and videos of him out there. He does look like he's having a good time, but equally, you know, the jet lag and the and the flight time and the travel and the kind of stress of maybe being in and around the squad when he's not quite 100% fit, it might... It might make him a little bit jaded when he comes back. Ideally, though, I would like to see him, yeah. Was, was it, um, I saw a picture with Didier Drogba. That was the one, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. On, on social media. Um, yeah, the other the, the other conundrum for us is who to play in midfield out of MacArthur, out of Kualte, Maya. We've got Schlupp, Bakary Sacco is Bakary, apparently. Oh, that was <laughs> terrible, wasn't it? Um you know, would would you put Meyer in there? Would you where where would you play Meyer if he was in there, or would you bring him on as an impact sub? Where I think he does better. He does seem to do better when he comes on as a sub, and when it, whenever he started, he hasn't done particularly well. I think the main thing with Meyer is that he has Zaha with him, and they've both they've both spoken about it in interviews. They've said whenever I get the ball, I look for where he is, and and vice versa. And I think they're both probably on a kind of different level, maybe talent wise, purely. To, to the rest of the team a bit like Kabai when you saw him two three years ago kind of looking for passes expecting people to be in certain positions and they weren't there yeah and I think they're kind of their movement and their and their understanding and their and, and their flair is on a different level to anyone else in the team and so I think Maya might be a little bit less effective if you don't have Zaha however I would say that even if Zaha doesn't play you've got to play Maya at home MacArthur is a good kind of seven out of ten diligent, hardworking, just above average Premier League centre midfielder, whereas Maya is, what, 23? 
German international. He's got the pedigree. I think you've got to play yeah. him. Plus, plus, we want to keep hold of him for a bit longer. I know he's he's probably come over to us to be a Premier League shop window player, but yeah, we we want to see more of him at Sellers. On the subject of uh, James McArthur, why didn't Scotland pick him? They did really well against Kazakhstan without McArthur, <laughs> didn't they? I don't think even McArthur could have saved them from the might of Kazakhstan. A brutal three-nil drubbing. <laughs> uh, I just had to mention the score there, which I'm sure everyone listening have all already what knew. What was it? Three-nil. Three-nil. For anyone, if anyone's radio crackled just a moment ago, that was Kazakhstan three. Scotland, where, nil. Where are Kazakhstan in the world FIFA rankings or the FIFA world rankings, Eva? We're, we're going to find out. I'm not sure they're in the top 100. All right, let's, have, let's make this a game then. Let's guess. Where do you think they are? 117th. I'd have said 114th, I think. What would you I'm say? I'm going for 104. They are currently 123rd. So there we go. They actually look quite good. The first goal in particular was a great finish. <laughs> but moving back to Huddersfield and Palace and away from bullying Scotland, uh, the creativity of Maya is all well and good. But one thing we touched on earlier in the show is the fact that Huddersfield might try and stop that just by kicking him. Do you see that as a problem or is that something that Palace have just got to put up with? Hopefully we'll be getting protection from the referees. I mean, Zaha hasn't been well they've it's been getting more fouls Zaha of late I think is than you know obviously he's been being fouled but they haven't always been given as fouls right um but he's been getting the fouls more nowadays and hopefully that will come through to the rest of the team but yeah that the way they clobbered us last season at home it just I know somebody said oh we're too nice who was it who said it we're too nice um, we should be a lot harder. We should be the teams that are making the cynical fouls and getting right up the other teams. And we don't really do that, do we? Maybe MacArthur's about the only one that, that will, will put his foot in a bit. Would you like to see Palace doing that, being scrappier, uglier, perhaps? I think that, I think that Palace need to, need to have that side to them. I, I wouldn't say I want to see it every week, but I would say that if another team comes up against us and they're obviously in it for the physical battle and they're trying to get in our faces, like Watford did very successfully in the FA Cup, I think we've got to be able to kind of turn that on and be a little bit harder and be a little bit rougher. And, and as you say, there are a couple of players who, who, who you would say are up for, for that battle every game. Um, Tomkins, Milivojevic, um, and probably Zaha as well. Um, but I think there might be kind of too many players in the team who might not be willing to put their foot in when it gets a little bit uglier. Players like Van Arnholt, um, people like that. And so I think I would like to see a kind of coarser side to the to, to the team if if we are uh, ending up in a physical battle. I saw a stat earlier when I was when I was uh, getting ready for the show. Um, Milivojevic has covered the second most amount of miles over a season. Wow. I, can't, I think a West Ham player. But it's something like 315 kilometres he's run this season. It's a serious distance, isn't it? He works for the team. They're ready for a scrap. It's that time of the show where I've got to press you for score predictions. Max, what are you saying? Uh, 3-0. Okay, 3-0. And Nick? I was going to say 3, but I'm going to go for 4. 4 nil. No messing about. Join us next week on the Crystal Palace Fan Show. Thanks for downloading this podcast from Love Sport Radio. For more, go to lovesportradio.com for all the latest podcasts, news and views. Or for more, follow us at Love Sport Radio on Twitter.
It's the 90th minute. All your mates around. You've got your McNugget share boxes ready to go. Your mates already got booked for double dipping and you steal the last nugget, snatching all three points. Perfect. Order McDelivery now on the McDonald's app. You in? At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. And there it is. That's as good as it gets on this stage. Nissan Townstar EV strikes again. It's an unstoppable van. Unstoppable! Look, just fantastic. You can actually see the ProPilot technology in action. Effortless parallel parking. It moves with all the confidence that comes with a five-year warranty. And with a bench full of all-star van experts, there's real strength in depth here. That's all-star quality. Search Nissan Townstar EV and visit your local all-star van centre to see for yourself. Terms and conditions apply. Five years or 100,000 miles, whichever comes first. ProPilot is an advanced driver assist technology. Driver's responsibility to stay alert, drive safely, and control vehicle at all times. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.